The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, whether you are sitting here present with us in, in the, our neo-Gothic nave or listening live on the radio at WBUR 90.9 FM or listening over the internet at WBUR.org or listening later on the podcast at bu.edu slash chapel. We greet you on this 23rd Sunday after Pentecost as here at Marsh Chapel we continue to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation in 1517 begun by Martin Luther. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel. I bear greetings on behalf of our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, as he is away this week. A special word of welcome to two special guests this morning. First, our guest preacher today, Professor Christopher Boyd Brown, Associate Professor of Church History at the Boston University School of Theology, one of the world's leading experts on the history of the Reformation, our own in-house Luther scholar and editor of the uh, general editor of the Luther Works Project in English. Also a special welcome this morning to our very own Inner Strength Gospel Choir under the direction of Herb Jones. We are grateful for their leadership in music this morning. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that, having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that, when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As we gather week by week here along the banks of the Charles, we begin our worship with a period of confession, a time to repent and turn back to God. As we, and we listen as the choir guides us in our Kyrie, and we participate in silence, remembering before God ourselves, our neighbors, and all that we have to lift up in prayer. Dearly beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verses 24 through 30. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you have asked? Why is it that you have you asked my name, and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why
from Psalm 145 with the antiphon. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words, and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are failing, and rejoices all who are then as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel.
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. Glory to you, O Lord. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Does God play games? The fear that God might is at the root of many of the anxieties of the modern world. Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, sought to find certainty in the face of the possibility that God might play tricks, and his opponents, solid Dutch Calvinist theologians, accused Descartes of blasphemy for even suggesting that such a thing was possible. Albert Einstein famously objected to quantum mechanics by insisting that God does not play at dice with the universe. Enlightenment thinkers criticized the Christian God on moral grounds, insisting that God had to act according to our own rationally discerned rules. The roots of this modern anxiety go far back into ancient and medieval philosophy and theology, which placed God at the transcendent apex of a crystalline hierarchy of being, or set God over the world as a kind of sovereign legislator. For Martin Luther, however, God is a God who plays games. Well, by now, on the second Sunday in November 2017, uh, two weeks after the anniversary of October 31st, 1517, you are probably tired of hearing about Luther's 95 theses and whether or not they were nailed to the Wittenberg church door. This is my bread and butter, and I confess I'm almost tired at this point. (laughs) But this morning, I want to propose a different framework for thinking about Luther and his Reformation in this 500th anniversary year. God at play. In the Gospel read this morning, Jesus says, To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. Now, for most of the centuries since Luther's lifetime, it is this gospel lesson that was appointed for anniversaries of the Reformation, read in Lutheran churches on October 31st each year, at least until the liturgical reforms of the late 20th century. And so it's appropriate to think about this text and the claims it makes in reflecting on the Reformation. Luther, in commenting on this text, understood it to embody God's call as a call to play, 
a call to join with God in God's divine game. Now, Luther's world in the 16th century was one, perhaps not unlike our own, in which new games were proliferating. If you have children or computers, you know what that's like. In a remark at table in the 1530s, Luther observed that games with cards and dice have now become common, for our age has invented many games. Surely this marks a great change. In my youth, all games were prohibited. Makers of cards and musicians at dances weren't admitted to the sacraments, and people were required to make confession of their gaming, dancing, and jousting. Today, these things are the vogue, and they're even defended as exercises for the mind. Luther himself played games. He played chess with students who came round the black cloister at carnival time, and he was familiar with the ancient European game of mills known in English as Nine Men's Morris, a kind of complicated version of tic-tac-toe. Luther liked to compare the devil to a player at mills who catches his opponents in a double mill in which no matter what you do, you're caught. The devil has won the game. Luther at one point penned an anonymous satire on the pope and the emperor based on the old German card game of Carnoffel. And yet this kind of game, a game with rules, is not really what Luther has in mind when he insists that God plays games. Rather, these games are like the games that human beings try to play with God. When we try to subject God to the rules, as if we could catch God in our own double mill of metaphysical or ethical necessity. For Luther, this human impulse to play games with God by catching God in our rules was exemplified by the scholastic theologians of the medieval universities who, as Luther saw it, speculate and play games with God up in heaven, what he is, thinks, and does in himself, and so on. And among Luther's own supporters, he discerned a distressingly similar effort to entrap God in the Swiss theologian Ulrich Zwingli, who argued that God's omnipotence, in fact, precluded his presence in the sacrament, because for God to be bound to the elements of bread and wine would be a limitation of divine power. For Zwingli, the god of human games is bound by necessity even in divine omnipotence. If God is spirit, then God cannot be flesh. If God is light, then God cannot be obscure. But for Luther, God, playing not human games but the divine game, is radically free. God's game, for Luther, is not a rule-based game like chess or cards. Rather, the game that Luther describes is more like a kind of unstructured play of pretending and playing in back-and-forth alternation between the players. One of Luther's favorite metaphors is to describe God as wearing masks, the larva dei, which simultaneously conceal and also reveal God's self, the mask of creation, the masks of the word and the sacraments, And Luther can also speak of the masks which God invites us to put on in the world, the masks of parenthood or political office, of responsibility for neighbors and for creation. For Luther, the point is not to remove the masks or to penetrate through God's masks to reach God in God's unmasked majesty, but instead to take up the masks and to join in God's game. Luther can sometimes think of these masks, in terms of the public masking of carnival. But above all, and most frequently, Luther imagines God's masks in terms of the games that take place 
between parents and children. The kind of pretending and tricks for the sake of jest that give way to shared laughter and joy. We might think, for example, of a father who lumbers around pretending to be a hungry bear to the combined sheer terror and equally sheer delight of his children, a game which begins with terrifying growls but ends with bear hugs and laughter. Indeed, it's remarkable to note that when Luther describes God as father, in relation to human beings at least, Luther is typically not invoking a perilous analogy between human masculinity and divine activity, as Aquinas and other theologians do. But when Luther describes God as father, he is chiefly describing a relationship typified by this kind of play. As he says, God plays with us, and we are his dear children. God dandles us and chides us. God is a father who plays games. What Luther sets Luther's understanding of God's play apart is not simply the idea of God at play, but the kind of play. The great scholar Desiderius Erasmus, the first editor of the Greek New Testament, when he finally took up his pen against Luther's theology, put forward a metaphor for salvation in which Erasmus compared God to a father who holds out an apple to a child in order to teach the child that he needs to walk over and take it. The apple, Erasmus says, is a gift, but the child must learn how to respond in order to get the prize. And in a similar vein, Erasmus argued about God's commandments. God surely would not command thou shalt to human beings who are simply unable to comply or to keep the law. But Luther has a more complex image of divine parenthood and of God's games. How often, Luther writes in response, do parents have a game with their children by telling them to come to them or to do this or that? precisely for the sake of showing them how unable they are and compelling them to call for the help of the parent's hand. Erasmus God plays games that are edifying and straightforward, intended to cultivate independence, perhaps the sort of educational games that parents buy for their children even today that get played once or twice or maybe not at all. Luther's God, on the other hand, plays games with terrifying reversals. Their point is not to teach a lesson to be taken away from the game, but to draw the players closer together. What matters is not the rules or winning or losing, but the playing itself and the persons whom the game binds together. How does God play this game? Luther says first that God plays this game through preaching. Preaching which does not simply inculcate a set of rules to keep to keep marching up the ladder until we reach God on the final rung, but preaching, as in today's gospel, which summons us now to mourn with the wailing of the law, now to dance with the piping of the gospel. God plays this game for Luther through song. Like Luther's dramatic hymn, which we will sing this morning, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, itself a proclamation of the triune God's play with the world. When we join in this game and sing together in church, We are not only singing to God, but also calling out to one another. When I come to church on a given Sunday, I may or may not feel particularly penitent or joyful or even very strong in faith. If it were simply a matter of my own devotion and the state of my own heart, I might or might not feel like singing at all. But Jesus says that you need the sound of my voice and I need the sound of yours. God's game continues through our singing. 
the call of the children calling to one another in the marketplace. And God plays this game through ordinary human words, the words of peace and comfort spoken by one human creature to another, the words that God makes God's very power unto salvation. The scriptures themselves for Luther are examples as well as witnesses of God's play in this way. Why, Luther asked, do the scriptures deal so much with inconsequential practical matters like marriages, households, and the flocks of the patriarchs and matriarchs, rather than occupying themselves with high and spiritual mysteries. It is because, Luther says, the Holy Spirit, God the Creator, deigns to play, to jest, and to trifle with his saints in what seem to be unimportant and inconsequential matters. Things in life which seem unimportant, measured in themselves, are nonetheless important within God's game. God plays this game through ordinary water, the water of baptism, which, joined with God's word, becomes a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. God plays through the supper of his Son, in which Jesus gives not what the senses perceive or philosophy can explain, but what Jesus' words declare, his own body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Zwingli, of course, saw all this as being, as he said, rather childish. But for Luther, that's only being a spoil sport, the kind of peevish child who perhaps thinks himself too grown up and refuses to join in the game. As Luther writes, these godless ones are not ready for God's game, that is, for dealing with the gospel, and so they spoil it as much as they are able. Here Luther also stands against old Pelagius, who liked to describe the mature Christian as so grown up that he no longer needed God. And Luther stands with old Augustine, for whom the Christian was always dependent on God's grace, like the child stilled at its mother's breast in Psalm 131. Spiritual growth for Luther is not increasing independence, but an ever-deepening faith and reliance upon God. For Luther, the Christian never outgrows God's play. To say that God is a God who plays games is, after all, to say that faith is the fundamental relationship with God. The God who does not play games does not need faith. If God is determined by the rules of human metaphysical or ethical schemes, then I can know what God must necessarily do toward me by analyzing my own status. If I'm good, then God who is good must be good toward me. If I am like God in my inner being, then I am part or participant in God. But with the God who plays games, there can be only faith. Trust, like that of a child who is tossed in the air and can only trust that he will be caught again in his parents' arms. The point of the game, again, is not victory for one side or the other through the application of rules, but the relationship of trust and love that is deepened between the players. Above all, God plays his divine game through Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the wisdom who calls out in the marketplace, the wisdom who eternally delights to play with humanity. That, after all, is how Proverbs 8 describes her. I was with God, arranging all things, and I took delight day by day, playing before God at all times, playing in the world, and my delight was to be with the children of men. This is the divine wisdom 
who comes into the world incarnate not as a solemn grown-up wearing an academic gown, but as a child. For Luther, the incarnation of the Son of God embodies this eternal divine game. Commenting on Isaiah 9, Luther writes, We have an infant, this child. The mother bears him for us, nurses him for us, but he remains a child for us forever. He does not display himself to us in somber seriousness, not in some terrible majesty at which we would have to tremble, but he shows himself to us as a little child, and in his childhood he plays with us to all eternity. God's play with his beloved people in Christ is perpetual and eternal. Luther finds God at play throughout the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures. Jesus jests and plays with his disciples in words and deeds. For example, terrifying them as if he were a ghost when he comes to them over the sea before revealing himself and consoling them by calming the storm. Jesus plays with the Syrophoenician woman when he denies her plea for help. But she joins in the game and compels Jesus through her faith. For the moment, God's game may seem terrifying even to the saints. The game of the cat, which means death to the mouse, as one of Luther's German proverbs puts it. And nevertheless, behind the mask or the specter of anger, God is playing as a loving parent with his children. And the saints finally come to receive the sweetness of God's game. In the book of Genesis, Luther finds the ultimate and climactic game of God with the patriarchs and matriarchs in the account of Jacob's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, grappling all night until finally the divine wrestler renders Jacob helpless by putting his hip out of joint. Yet Jacob will not let go. Luther insists that this wrestler, the divine wrestler, is the Lord of glory, God himself or God's son, who was to become incarnate and who appeared and spoke to the fathers also. Yet it is in playing, not simply in yielding, but in wrestling with God, that Jacob comes to know God. Jacob has at first no idea who it is who is wrestling with him. He does not know that it is God. After all, he asks what his name is. But after Jacob receives the blessing, he says, I have seen the Lord face to face. It is this God, the God who plays games, who is able to become flesh, to reveal God's self through playing, to give himself as a pledge. When God plays his game with the saints, God does not simply set up a game for us to play and perhaps to lose against terrible opponents, sin, death, and hell. Rather, God is in the game, in the incarnation. God does not simply preside over the game in omnipotent transcendence. As we might say, quite literally, God has skin in the game. Therefore, as Luther says, I do not have or know any other God, neither in heaven nor on earth, but this one who is warmed at his mother's breast, who hangs upon the cross. To play God's game is to play with God, with the incarnate God. Wisdom, Jesus says, is justified by her children, the children who hear God's call and join in God's game. Luther's God plays games. In this 500th year of the Reformation, will we play along? Amen.
now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God, please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. all, we thank you for your ever-present goodness, mercy, and love. We cannot help but glorify you and acknowledge your pure radiance. We see it, we feel it, we know it. And we know that you hear all of our prayers, and like a loving parent, you do not reserve or hide your bounty of grace from us. The Universal Church exists to testify to something beyond this world, beyond the hatred, limitations, fears we see before us. We are here to be your people, to express nothing less than qualities worthy of your adoration. Strengthen us as we move your mission forward. Our dear, dear Creator, we acknowledge that you give life to all that was, is, and will be. You continue to open the mysteries of creation up to us so that we may know who you are through what you create. Pour into us a feeling of awe for all that surrounds us so that we may treat it with the respect, love, and care that you demand. Let us support the leaders in this world with the type of principled love that insists justice to guide our laws and our people. We pray for peace, not just for ourselves, not just for our neighbor, but for all humanity. And we will work every day to ensure that we are allowing your kingdom to reign in our hearts and in our minds so that we may realize it more in this world. Jesus showed through the multiplication of the loaves and fishes that you give supply to those in need. He demonstrated that the sick are given not just peace, but healing through their trust in you. His care for the bereaved and the suffering never tired. And we are reminded in Psalms that God setteth the solitary in families. 
though we do not prescribe the form. All of this we remember from the Bible and set our hopes and expectations that the same principles that operated then are still in effect. Allow this congregation to grow in our affection, dedication, discipline, humor, intellect, and most importantly, our love. Help us to serve our community in a humble and faithful way. Lord, we give you our heart, mind, and soul, and we thank you for giving us yours. Amen. And as our Savior Christ has taught us, we now pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us not our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you here once again to the Nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew, passing that book along to your neighbors so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. A special word of greeting again to Professor Brown, and thanks for bearing the word among us this morning. Thanks also to the Inner Strength Gospel Choir and the anthem they have offered and the offertory that they will offer momentarily. We want to especially lift up that the Inner Strength Gospel Choir will be hosting their fall concert this coming Friday at 7.30 here in the nave of Marsh Chapel. We hope you will take a look at the insert to your bulletin uh, and uh, get your tickets ahead and be here on Friday evening for that event. Staying in the musical vein, I turn things over for a moment to Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett, our Director of Music, about some other upcoming musical activities. Thank you very much, Brother Larry. Uh, my greetings also to Herb and the Gospel Choir. We're so glad you're here this morning. Thank you very much. Um, next Sunday is the second installment of our Bach experience, uh, and we perform uh, in the liturgy next Sunday, Cantata 95, Christus der ist mein Leben. 
And we'll, of course, teach the cantata in the 9.45 hour before the service with breakfast afterward. We encourage you to come, be a part. We're studying all cantatas from the summer of 1723, which was the first uh, summer that Bach was working in Leipzig and really beginning weekly uh, cantata composition. It's been an extremely rewarding process already, and we're delighted to bring Cantata 95 next week uh, to the service. If you don't have it yet, the Bach Experience Listener's Companion, newly published this year, is available for free in the Narthex. We encourage you to take a copy, enjoy the note on Cantata 95 uh, therein, and be prepared for next week. Thanks very much. Thank you, Scott. Immediately following the service today, we hope you will join us downstairs for the Break the Chains Holiday Coffee Hour, hosted by Abolitionist Chapel today. Uh, one of our groups here at Marsh Chapel. They will be presenting resources, samples, and internet links for welcome and guilt-free holiday gifts and entertaining. Enjoy a complimentary lunch of fair trade soup, bread, coffee, tea, and dessert. Learn from a brief and hopeful presentation on modern-day slavery. Consider easy ways you can make a difference to break the chains of millions of women, men, and children in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, greet... Uh, the Reverend Victoria Hart Gaskell, our chapel associate for Methodist ministry, uh, who leads that group and leads our coffee hour today. As the ushers wait upon us for, oh, another announcement uh, in the stewardship mode coming from uh, Heidi Freemanis Courts, our director of hospitality. Greetings. I'm here once again to bring your attention to the pledge cards for estimates of two. Uh, 2018 annual giving, uh, which are available in your bulletins this Sunday. Pledge cards will continue to be available through Sunday, December 3rd, which is Pledge Sunday. You may also pledge online at www.bu.edu slash chapel slash stewardship. Your annual estimate of giving helps us plan our 2018 ministry. We are grateful for your generous support. As the ushers wait upon us for our morning offering, we invite you to meditate on Tommy Dorsey's uh, song, If We Ever Needed the Lord, arranged by the Reverend Charles Nix. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Dear God, most beneficent and merciful, as we enter the daytime and the evening and die with your power, we thank you for all that you have given us. No matter how minor it is, it is great as it is a gift from you, the most generous. Let us be grateful for that which we are given. All praise be to God who has forgiven us of our sin today so that we may return to you tomorrow in paradise. Amen. Go forth with God, go forth to play with God. Go forth to play with one another and with neighbor, that God may be revealed in your midst, in your play. And let us remember that life is short and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love, make haste to be kind, 
and play each day as if it were your last. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit abide and remain with you now and always. Amen.